On location in the Holy Land, David Taverner from UCB travels with Bible teacher and church pastor Mike Beaumont to trace the life of Jesus then and now. In our last conversation, Mike, we were focusing on the agony of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane and then that arrest. What happened after that? Well, Jesus was brought by the guard that had been sent for him down from the Garden of Gethsemane along the Kidron Valley and up these slopes on this southern side of the city to be brought to the house of Caiaphas, the high priest, where he would experience the first of a whole number of trials that he would go through that night. You know, we often think that, yeah, Jesus went through trials, one with the religious authorities and one with the secular authorities. But when you look at the text carefully, what you see is that he underwent at least six different trials that night, being passed from pillar to post, from one part of the city to another. And so where we are sitting right now in the gardens of the church of St. Peter in Gallicantu, recalling where Peter made his denials and built over the ruins of the house of Caiaphas, right alongside us, there are some stone steps from the time of Jesus that lead down from Caiaphas's house here, down towards the Kidron Valley. And you know, David, I find this one of the most moving places in the whole of our journey that we've done, to think that those steps there would have been steps that Jesus himself walked up and down that night when he was betrayed and when he was about to be handed over to be crucified. And just to see, sometimes, you know, when you come on trips to the Holy Land, it's sometimes not always the big things that grab you and the big churches, but the little things, the natural things, like those stone steps that grab you, that think, my goodness, Jesus was here. And of these trials, it sounds like a number of them are in front of the sort of religious leaders, the authorities, the Roman authorities aren't involved at this point. Yes, absolutely. Um, the religious authorities have, have got to get their act together and come with a conclusion that they can bring to the political secular authorities who alone have the authority to put Jesus to death at this time. So all through the night, they're trying to come up with evidence that they can take to the Roman governor, Pilate, so that they can get this man, Jesus, executed. So why don't we read about the first and second of those trials with these religious authorities that Jesus underwent right here, right where we are in this location of Caiaphas's house, probably taken down from the cells and the pit that we'll talk about in a minute, brought up to talk to Caiaphas in his quite palatial home here. And this is what we read in John chapter 18 and verse 12. Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it would be good if one man died for the people. Just a couple of things before we go on. Why to Annas, first of all, the father-in-law of Caiaphas? Well, Annas had been the high priest and had been replaced by the secular authorities and Caiaphas put in place instead. 
So as far as many Jews were concerned, it was Annas who was the true high priest and who had true spiritual authority. And so Jesus is taken to him first. Secondly, there's that reference there to Caiaphas. Caiaphas, who was the one who'd advised the Jews that it would be good if one man died for the people. What Caiaphas actually meant there, of course, was it will be better for us if we get rid of this guy. Better one guy is put to death than all of us end up in trouble because he's going to stir up trouble unless we deal with him. Of course, it was incredibly prophetic because it would be better if one man died. One man was going to die on the cross and it would be better for all mankind. So Caiaphas, as high priest, was prophesying and he didn't know it. So let's just continue with the reading. John then tells us about Peter's first denial, which we look at in a separate episode. But meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. I've spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I always taught in the synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby struck him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest, he demanded? If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why do you strike me? Then Anna sent him, still bound, to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now, here's two trials then. One with Annas, one now about to happen with Caiaphas. Did they live in the same home? Did they live very closely together? Either is possible. But Jesus is now certainly brought here to this location where we're sitting today. And the way he was treated by the religious authorities. I mean, there must have been procedures. They didn't care about the procedures. What they cared about was power. Sadly, that's how some religious people still operate today, isn't it? And it's anything but following the example of Jesus. You see, the priests were the Sadducees, very small group, but a very powerful group. The Sadducees were the priestly families who operated the temple. They were the priests, they were the high priests. And Caiaphas and Annas had a very nice business going for them, thank you very much. They profited significantly out of the whole temple system. They were in power. It was a case of, if you want to go to God, you come through us. Now, you don't have any more power than that, do you, to tell someone they can't get to God unless they go through you. And so they ruled in that temple that would have been dominating just up on the hill there behind us. And... This was about power. This was not about operating in a godly way. And here was a rabbi who was just disturbing, who was disrupting, who was upsetting the Pharisees because he wasn't keeping the laws devoutly, who was upsetting the Sadducees because, you know, he just cleared out the temple of all those money changers and so on we saw in a previous episode. So he was disturbing the temple as well. And so they don't care anything. All they want is to get rid of this man. And hence this terrible way that, you know, there's no sense of fair trial here. Jesus is simply slapped across the face by one of the guards for daring to speak in, quite frankly, a truthful manner 
to the high priest. It already doesn't sound like innocent until proven guilty. Oh, not at all. Um, They had decided that this man was guilty. They had decided that this man, Jesus, had to be got rid of. And what happens from this place here, Caiaphas's house, through all the trials that follow, is frankly sheer show trials designed to try and put on some sort of appearance that they are following the procedures of the law. They brought him here in the night and started questioning him during the night. The Jewish law strictly forbade that trials could take place during the night. Why? Because you couldn't be sure that all the witnesses could be gathered. So even the location and the timing of it shows that they care nothing about the rules and the law. All they care about is getting the outcome that they want. So how does all this continue to unfold? Perhaps one of the things we ought to say about here before we go on to the next stage is how Jesus was held here. It's clear from the ruins under this church that this house was very extensive and was the home of a very wealthy man. As you come in through the front door of the church that perhaps we'll talk about in a separate episode, you can go down into the crypt and right in the centre of that crypt, there's a glass floor where you can look down into caves and pits below. And then if you come out of that, walk round the side, you can go down stone staircases. And there you find down below a whole host of caves and pits There's a whole area that archaeologists think was for keeping horses, the stables. Um, There were water cisterns down there. But also there's a prison down there that is only accessed by lowering someone down through a hole from the top. It's the sort of thing that happened to Jeremiah. He was actually lowered into a cistern for it to be a prison for him. So Jesus is brought here. Ropes would have been spread under his arms, and he would have been dropped down, lowered down into this pit down below. And there he spent the night, would have then been hoisted up, perhaps to talk to Annas first of all, perhaps let back down again into the pit, then brought up again to be confronted by Caiaphas, probably let back down again, pulled up again when it's time for the next stage that we'll come on to in a moment, appearing before the whole Sanhedrin. And you and I have just been down there and stood in this cave pit where almost certainly Jesus was kept overnight, abandoned, discarded, thrown away, treated as the vilest of criminals when all he had tried to do was to help people, be good to people and bring God's word to people. And when groups go down there, they very often read a particular psalm. Yeah, that's right. Um, Psalm 88 is a psalm that's actually down there on a lectern in as many languages of the world as you could think of for pilgrims to be able to read. It's a psalm written not by David, but by those sons of Korah, whoever they were, um, that so aptly describes that feeling of emotional intensity and abandonment by everybody that Jesus must have felt at that moment. And while that psalm's never been seen as messianic as such, I tell you what, when you read it and when you stand down there 
in that pit cave like you and I just have done, it doesn't half express the sort of things that Jesus must have been left feeling as he was left there for us. O Lord, the God who saves me, day and night I cry out before you. May my prayer come before you, turn your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of trouble and my life draws near the grave. I'm counted among those who go down to the pit. I'm like a man without strength. I'm set apart with the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more, who are cut off from your care. You have put me in the lowest pit, in the darkest depths. Your wrath lies heavily upon me. You have overwhelmed me with all your waves. You've taken from me my closest friends and have made me repulsive to them. I am confined and cannot escape. My eyes are dim with grief. I call to you, O Lord, every day. I spread out my hands to you. Do you show your wonders to the dead? Do those who are dead rise up and praise you? Is your love declared in the grave, your faithfulness in destruction? Are your wonders known in the place of darkness or your righteous deeds in the land of oblivion? But I cry to you for help, O Lord. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. Why, O Lord, do you reject me and hide your face from me? From my youth, I have been afflicted and close to death. I have suffered your terrors and am in despair. Your wrath has swept over me. Your terrors have destroyed me. All day long, they surround me like a flood. They have completely engulfed me. You have taken my companions and loved ones from me. And the darkness is my closest friend. The psalm so powerfully reflects so many emotions, but that last phrase in particular, the darkness is my closest friend, that's still as real for people today as ever it was. Absolutely. I mean, it's the language of feeling abandoned, being on your own, being depressed. I think there are many people who go through those feelings still today, aren't there? And to think that how Jesus has gone through them, understands them fully. This is why the New Testament says he's well able to help those who are tempted and are tested. Why? Because he himself was tempted and tested in every way that we are, yet was without sin. He knows he's been through it, you know. And if people listening to this at the moment are in, frankly, what feels like a dark pit themselves, take courage for the moment that Jesus is with you. It might be dark, but he's not abandoned you. God has not abandoned you. Jesus knew that. He's pouring out his heart. He's being real. That's why I love the Psalms, because they're very real in what they say. And yet the undergirding is, you know, I'm in a dark place, Lord, but I'm still trusting you. I know that you're with me, and I know that you're going to bring me through this. And Jesus must have almost felt trapped because the trials are continuing. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's not all over by um, a long shot yet. 
In fact, let's go on now to, you know, the third trial. So he's been before Annas, he's been before Caiaphas. Now he's brought out uh, to meet with the whole Jewish Sanhedrin, that group of ruling, leading rabbis and teachers and, the, and priests that, that determined life, spiritual life for Israel. And they come at this investigation of Jesus, uh, looking at a whole number of different things. Let's look at it now. I'm going to turn back to Matthew's gospel now because that's the one that gives us more of an insight into what went on. So Matthew 26 and verse 57. Those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. So that's the ground that we've covered already. Peter followed at a distance and he's waiting. We're going to look at that in a separate episode. But then we read this. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus. Interesting, isn't it? Not looking for evidence, looking for false evidence against Jesus. So they could put him to death. So they've decided on the outcome of this show trial already. But they didn't find any though many false witnesses came forward. So they are now giving opportunity for people to bring stuff. It's the fact that it's the middle of the night. Clearly all this has been set up and pre-prepared, but they can't get what the Jewish law demanded, that every charge be supported by two or three witnesses. They can't even get two people agreeing on a charge together. But finally, two came forward and declared, this fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. So here's the first attack that they're going for. It was his opposition to the temple. And these guys saying, well, we heard him say, I'm going to, you know, destroy this temple and in three days I'll rebuild it. Even his own disciples at the time had thought he was meaning the actual temple that they were alongside at that time. Whereas the gospel writer tells us, no, he was talking about his body, destroy this temple, my body, and it will be raised again. So there's the first thing. They have a go at, can we get him on the grounds of opposition to the temple, you know, but even here, they, they don't seem to be able to get anything. And Jesus just won't respond to the accusation. So Caiaphas moves on, he tries a different tack. So the high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, in the future you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, He has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, now you've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He's worthy of death, they all answered. And they spat in his face and struck him with their fist. And others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, Christ. Who hit you? So now Caiaphas is absolutely delighted because he now has Jesus 
on a charge of blasphemy. He asks him, are you the Messiah? And now, when there can be no misunderstanding, Jesus' understanding of Messiahship, now he's ready to answer that question openly. Yes, I am. That in itself was not blasphemous. The Messiah was just a human figure that God would use. But Jesus goes on to say more, saying that in the future, you're going to see the Son of Man, me, sitting at the right-hand side of God and coming in great power. Oh, my goodness, that was it. Alarm bells now ring. Sitting at the right-hand side of God, that was a claim to be equal with God. This is now blasphemy. And they have him. Whereas earlier, it sounded like Jesus was saying no comment. This time, he's <laughs> answering the question, but being completely truthful. Yeah, absolutely, being absolutely truthful. And, of course, they, they didn't like the truth. They hadn't liked the truth for the last three-plus years of his ministry. But on the other hand, they did like it because they were able to twist the truth and use it now for their own wicked purposes. How hypocritical was all of this? Oh, hypocritical spelt with capital letters all the way through. I mean, already Jesus has often challenged, hasn't he, the Pharisees and the Sadducees for hypocrisy through their saying one thing but doing another. And the whole thing is, is hypocritical. Uh, the fact that this is a trial is hypocritical because it's not a trial. It shouldn't have taken place during the night. There are clearly no witnesses and yet they want to dress it up as though it were a trial. Do you know what it's like? It's like some of these show trials we get in dictatorships around the world, even today, where the dictator wants to be seen as though he's following the law and everything's set up just so he can get the answer and the outcome that he wants. And that's exactly that was happening here. There was no truthfulness. This... Come on, who was it who was doing this? This was the high priest who was supposed to be God's representative to the people and the people's representative to God on earth. It was the Sanhedrin who was supposed to be the guardians of the law and ensuring it's fulfilled faithfully. And all of them aren't concerned about truth. They aren't concerned about God. All they're concerned about is position and power, their position and their power. So this injustice which took place just feet, yards, metres from where we are, did then the religious authorities have exactly what they wanted? Oh, uh, absolutely. Um, but of course it still wasn't really enough to convince the secular authorities. Charges of blasphemy were completely irrelevant to the Roman authorities, so they're going to have to change that. So having had his initial trials here with Annas, with Caiaphas, the current high priest, with the Sanhedrin, that Jewish ruling council, um, these religious leaders will now send Jesus on from here to appear before Pilate, and we look at that in a separate episode, to then appear before Herod, because Pilate thinks, I can't cope with this, this is too tricky. Ah, oh, you're Galilean, are you? I'll send you to Herod. Herod's just wanting a quick, cheap miracle from Jesus, because he's heard about him, and he ends up sending him back to Pilate. 
And as we see in another episode, the religious authorities manipulate Pilate, corner him, and they change this charge of blasphemy to one of treason. And suggesting to Pilate that if he doesn't toe the line with what they want, then they could make sure that he would charge with treason too, reminding him that, you know, we have no king but Caesar, and if we don't get what we want, we'll make sure he hears about this. It's quite remarkable how Jesus is pushed from pillar to post, as it were, from Herod to Pilate. And you said Herod. Uh, just remind us of that incident. Yeah, Herod, that's a sort of mixture of uh, a religious and political ruler because he's the, the king of Judea and he ought to be representing, therefore, God's people's best interests. But he'd been put there by Rome, of course, and he was looking after their interests. Well, actually, to be truthful, he was looking after his own interests. But, yeah, he's brought in to it as well, just to see if he's got anything to add on. Now, we have to go to Luke's Gospel to read about that. And here's an interesting thing. Herod has been wanting to see Jesus for some time. Uh, back in chapter 9 of Luke, we, we read that Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was going on. And he was perplexed because some people were saying that John the Baptist had been raised from the dead, others that Elijah had appeared, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago had come back to life. And Herod said, but I beheaded John. Who then is this that I keep hearing things about? So he's heard the stories about Jesus. And Luke says, and he tried to see him. So he's been wanting to see Jesus. And now... Here's his opportunity in Luke 23 and verse 6 just picks up from the Pilate interview. On hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean and when he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased because for a long time he'd been wanting to see him. From what he'd heard about him, he hoped to see him perform some miracle. He plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. What a contrast with Pilate, with whom he had quite a conversation. But Jesus refuses to answer Herod. Why? Because he was a man who was abusing his position as the king of God's people. While the chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there vehemently accusing him, then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him. Dressing him in an elegant robe, they sent him back to Pilate. And that day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Because before this, they'd been enemies. Isn't that interesting? My enemy's enemy is my friend. And there's an example of that. So what does he want? He just wants a cheap miracle. Come on, Jesus, I've been hearing about you. Show us a miracle then. Come on, what can you do? And it's just mockery. He, he has no real interest and sends him back once again. But again, one of those at least six trials that happened through those night hours. I was going to say, backwards and forwards to all these so-called people in authority. And I suppose as we read the Bible, it's worth remembering that at this point, time has sort of slowed down. There's a lot happening in a short space of time. Yeah, absolutely. It's as if 
things have gone pretty slowly. You know, and you and I have been through Galilee and we've seen where Jesus has been and as he moved from one place to another, he wouldn't have jumped on a bus or in an Uber. He would have walked everywhere and the pace is much slower there. But now as it comes to Jerusalem for this final week, from the point where Jesus enters into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, which we've looked at in a previous episode, the pace of everything speeds up as this week goes along. And then as we get to the final day, the final night, the Thursday going into the Friday on which he was executed, the pace gets quicker and quicker and quicker. Why? Because it's almost as if God's saying, the time is here. Ultimately, there was no fair trial at all. Absolutely not. You know, as we look through these Six trials as we sit here in the garden of St. Peter in Gallicantu and the home of Caiaphas. All of it, all of the trials spoke of injustice, of vested interests, of political power being abused to serve me. There was no justice from start to finish of this. So it looked like Jesus had lost really, didn't it? And they got the upper hand. Yeah, it sure did. And you know what? Within a few hours, it would look even more so like that when they got rid of this Jesus and nailed him to a cross. But what they were all about to see, political and religious authorities alike, was that you can do what you like and you can wangle how you like and you can manipulate and abuse power as you like. But there is a God in heaven who uses all of that to bring about not your purposes, but his. And that's exactly what would happen over that Easter weekend, of course. It certainly seems as if at this point it's the world v. Jesus in legal terms. Yes, and even those who had welcomed him just five days earlier, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, Hosanna to the son of David as he come in on Palm Sunday, within hours of Jesus being here, would be shouting out at the foot of the cross at Golgotha, the place of execution, crucify him, get rid of him. At the trials, they'd be shouting when Pilate offered to release Jesus as part of the Passover amnesty. They'd be saying, no, 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 we don't want him. We want Barabbas. My goodness, it did look like the whole world was against him. In fact, where were his disciples again? Even they had all run away, hadn't they? This really did seem like Jesus was on his own, the whole world against him. But of course, he wasn't on his own. His father was with him. And his father was about to do something absolutely amazing. So as you think of Jesus in that pit prison that you've been in, just pray for us. Lord Jesus, as we sit here, just yards away from a pit where you were almost certainly held, where you were abused, where you were denied legal process, where everyone had abandoned you and was against you. Yet you kept trusting your heavenly father. 
Lord, when things go wrong in our lives, when people come against us, when we find ourselves in a pit, help us to keep trusting you. You who always have a plan up your sleeve. If only we'll wait to see what you will do. In Jesus' name we pray this. Amen. Amen. Mike Beaumont and David Taverner in the Holy Land, tracing the life of Jesus then and now. Check out the UCB website for the free episode guide with photos, Bible references and background information. Go to ucb.co.uk forward slash Jesus then and now. And you can hear more 30 minute conversations with Mike and David talking about the Bible on the UCB player app. Under podcasts, just select Bible books, Bible biogs or Bible surprises. Bible surprises.